Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. I'm Philip Glanville, the directly elected Mayor of Hackney, and up until April the 16th, I was also the Cabinet Member for Regeneration as part of my portfolio, and I've just handed um, the responsibility for housing for the sort of first time in, you know, since I've been Mayor in terms of Regeneration to a new Deputy Mayor, Rebecca Renison. So, um, but I was really keen to sort of do this interview because it King's Crescent in one way, like I've not lived the experience of the existing residents at all. I can't pretend that I've lived on a regeneration estate, either as a leaseholder or tenant, but in one way or another, I've been kind of involved in King's Crescent for 15 years. And um, I remember going there, I was selected as a candidate for council in Hoxton, totally the other end of the borough but actually only 15 minutes by bus. And we were campaigning what was then Woodbury Down Ward. And you had Woodbury Down on the one hand and King's Crescent on the other. And they were partially demolished, partially decanted. We were just setting up our arms length management organization as a council. So there were some very strange branding things going on where you had, you know, legacy council branding, new regeneration branding, a new arms length management organization, a big pile of rubble. And you sort of came from Shoreditch to that and you're just like, what happened here? You know, it was really confusing. And, you know, the borough was changing, but it felt like places had sort of been um, left behind. And I think, um, for that community, regeneration had been talked about and failed so many times on King's Crescent. And I've been to so many sort of moments, whether it's Christmas parties, groundbreakings, topping out. And I think you just first of all have to remember what it was like to live there and be told you were going to be regenerated. And then suddenly half of it is blown up. And then that's never finished and then it never happens. So it went into the Great Recession, public-private partnership failed in that recession. And the council had already been kind of talking and pushing and thinking about we want to build council housing again. Um, and, and thought that this was a moment to really reconsider the delivery models for these schemes. 18 sites across the borough were sort of reviewed. And in that work, I think there was an acknowledgement that a lot of King's Crescent was really sound. That while the tower blocks hadn't been and the kind of streets in the sky hadn't been and uh, there were lots of design issues there, that actually once you sort of stripped it back and reflected, um, the masonette kind of vernacular that's there with, you know, large family homes, dual aspect, all the things that people would highlight now as being at the heart of community, um, were really important. Um, now there were issues with prostitution, there was the, the hoardings, um, the, the poor maintenance, the partially demolished bits uh, of the estate. But, you know, at the heart of it, actually good transport links overlooking Clissold Park, a real strong sense of community. And so I think, um, I'm, you know, I'm going back to that point because the decision was made, we we're going to do this in-house, we're going to remaster plan, we're going to have a resident steering group. Uh, and we are going to invest in the existing estate and bring it up to a decent homes plus standard. And we're going to build new council housing, new private housing, new shared ownership. And at the end, 
uh, it will be co-produced with the community and it will be owned by the council and managed by the council. And that's quite a radical departure. Radical departure as well because we retained. So that argument, can't you retain and, and re repurpose and renew? Um, not everywhere, no you can't, but here we really thought we could. And I think it's partly because it is that high quality family housing um, that is so, so much in need. And uh, so I took it over as portfolio holder in 2011, just as the master plan, just as the key financial documents on our, our, our delivery mechanism were being finalised. And we basically went out with King's Crescent as one of our first fully in-house self-funded projects. Um, so we did a bit under local authority, new build last Labour government put some money into redeveloping council housing. So we finished some projects in 2010-11, but we also started some, and King's Crescent was the one we started. So what you see now that went on site in 2015 and completed in 2017-18 is that first two phases of a project. But end-to-end, -end, we're going to be talking probably, you know, 20 years of my life one way or another but a lot longer for the residents that that have lived through it um but so did you um, did you have the expertise that you wanted at that point was this i mean it was a radical departure but also was there a learning curve in terms of what you were doing or were those skills already in-house at that point huge huge learning curve so um that that small team um there'd been a small team in the council that um had had been involved in development but not really built anything directly so they've been clienting some of the previous stock transfers there was a team at Woodbury Dow but what we built was um, we, we had a real commitment to architecture so very early on KCA had been brought in um, uh, and their partners Muff uh, and others on the estate uh, and so they were already a sort of design team that I, that I inherited but the, the team on the council side um, back then was a handful of people and now it's sort of 60 strong so we've been in the sort of decade that we've been delivering King's Present and our other projects and I suppose ramping up the ambition so in 2011, we said King's Crescent City sat as a part of a sort of 3,000 home development program in-house. It's now much larger than that. It's 4,000 uh, and heading towards 4,500 to 5,000, I think, by the time we sort of complete. That's 2,000 this kind of administration, but it's a, it's a much more ambitious program than it was. And we've constantly been increasing the amount of affordable housing in it as well. So one of the things I think we've very publicly said about King's Crescent is it, it did perform better than we, we, we had thought in terms of financial return. And I think the way we structured the financial arrangement with the end developer um, and the way we recycle the profits of private sale back into our programmes mean that in that third and fourth phase, which is going to go on site in the next year, that there's more affordable housing because of the way that we've done this. Uh, and you're, you're able to sort of navigate a little bit and balance out also the economic cycle. So, you know, these are schemes that were kind of reset in the teeth of the last recession uh, have, have survived the, the bumps uh, of the, the previous decade. And I think we'll be resilient in whatever comes next. Uh, and we can also take that long-term sort of view that a private developer or housing association can't sometimes do. So do you, do you want to talk me through 
um, for those who are less familiar with the scheme, the mix of affordable, social, and um, private on site, and, and maybe why it looks the way it, not looks appearance-wise, but why that mix is the way it is. So um, the King's Crescent, so King's Crescent is a, a medium-sized survey in sort of Stoke Newington. Uh, it's uh, the, the retained blocks, as I've said, a sort of masonette layout with some um, slightly smaller flats. And then what we've created is an integrated new street through the development. And then on the north side, we've done phase one and two. Uh, and that's um, 79 social rented homes, um, I think approximately about 36 um, shared ownership, and then uh, 150 plus private sales to sort of pay for that phase. Um, and and, and that, that's what we've delivered. And then on the south side, we are delivering a mixture of um, just under 30 social rent, um, I think just over 70 social shared ownership, and then um, I think approximately 130 new private sale, um, uh, and, but also some of the community infrastructure for the estate, so a new community um, facility, a new public square, a multi-use games area, and then some affordable workspace. And I should have said on the north side, there is also um, uh, some new retail and community sort of temporary community space and I think what's also interesting some design principles that were built into the very early stage of the master plan was completely tenure blind shared courtyard shared management so one of the last big sort of media things I did up there was last year talking about the the kind of poor poor door um, divided playgrounds uh, issue that has um, kind of happened across London uh, at, in new development. So while you might get sort of tenure blind externally, you never meet each other. Or uh, it really set out was that the five tenures at King's Crescent would not necessarily all share the same core, but share all the public realm and all the courtyards and have the same standard of community facilities and finish. So that's existing tenants, leaseholders, shared owners, new council tenants, and new private buyers. Uh, and I think that's its sort of strength. Um, and, and I think we've also put in a very clear kind of sales regime in, in the first phase around wanting resident buyers. So there's been no foreign uh, off-plan sales in that first phase. Uh, only five homes were sold by to let. Um, and if you go there, I think that extra effort, both on the private sale and the shared ownership or sort of Hackney first model, I live, work in Hackney and even beyond that, it tends to be Islington, Haringey, uh, Camden has locked in a sense that it, it feels like Hackney in those courtyards. So yes, different people have come from, uh, from different economic perspectives, but it, it is still the borough, whereas you can see sort of development that becomes very polarised. And I think that that's one of its big strengths in what we've tried to do. There's a lot of people who, who talk about the challenges of tenure blind. And I think you mentioned here, they might, they, there is a kind of core the, you know, sharing the public areas, but you still have to divide by core. What are the challenges about um, that prevent that kind of, I mean, I think there are some uh, discriminatory um, things that have happened in, in certain estates, but my understanding is that there is a property management challenge around the cores, but I don't, I don't really understand the, 
why the cores themselves tend to still be segregated? I think there's a mixture of challenges that are real and perceived. So I think the real challenges are issues around service charge um, and making sure that you can deliver a genuinely affordable product to social tenants and shared owners. And I suppose one of the tools we've used there is that the council ultimately is the managing agent. So you haven't got um, multiple managing agents. You have no cities in any part of the development that are purely for private owners. So there's no concierge, there's no club rooms, there's no gym, um, there's no sort of high-polluting water features and things like that. So overall, I think the service charge level is lower for everyone than a comparable private development. And that means you don't have to carve it up. You don't have to have a situation where, you know, that private tower's got the concierge uh, and then the social tenants don't. And then, you know, there's that inequity. And then you can sometimes get into a debate, well, if you want the concierge, then you'll have to pay for it. Well, you know, it doesn't, you know, and there's, uh, there's no people sort of peering in through a glass door and seeing a gym or playground that they don't have access to. And I think that's really important. So while, um, the mixes tend to be social rent, shared ownership, or shared ownership private. I, don't, I think there are very few even lift calls that are completely monotenure. But as I say, they open up into shared streets, but also the shared courtyards behind the security doors. So if you want to use the playground, if you want to access the bike storage, um, the, that, that is all shared. So I think the, the, that's why I say it's real and perceived. There is a real service charge issue, which if you design a scheme that's going to have concierges and private gyms and stuff, then inevitably you lead to much higher degrees of segregation. If you say actually, you know, Hatton's a very mixed economically borough already, and you know, parks and spaces, entranceways, um, you know, should be the same. Then, then I think you get the sort of results that you see at Craig King's Crescent, and why we're so sort of proud, proud of it. And it also, I, I think that um, if, you're, if you're thinking about the needs for sort of gyms and things like that, provide them either out in the open uh, or nearby that are accessible to all. And I think that was also the sort of principle around it, around the sort of play and the integration uh, for families across the scheme. Uh, I think it, it's worth talking about those what's in those courtyards and those kind of public uh, shared spaces that have been created. There's the play street, which is quite unique actually. Um, and, and I guess somebody might've said, you know, this, this development, this estate is right across the road from Clissold Park, which has a massive child's playground. You, you could have very easily said, go play over there. Um, but, and yet there is this kind of um, pedestrian corridor which I think has also had its teething problems in that it was a perhaps a, a space where drivers were kind of trying to park in it. <laughs> I know some bollards kind of appeared over time to try and really keep it pedestrian. Um, but but again, this 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 pedestrian um, street that has Play Street written written on it, um, which seems a really um, uh, an act of of trying to create some kind of public a very public act. Um, and a very public corridor. So it'd just be interesting to, to hear about the genesis of that, um, its purpose, uh, and the fact that it's also um, quite public, and then maybe contrast that to what's going on in the courtyards, which are um, uh, in private, I suppose, although shared by residents. 
And I think residents in one block have access to the other courtyards, if I'm right. You, we yes. try to have a maximum flexibility around the FOB and also you haven't got a situation where an existing social tenant is like looking out of their winter garden into a courtyard that they can't access because they're not part of the new development. So I think we've tried to. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things of all regeneration is how they evolve uh, over time and what is prioritised. So um, I wasn't there at the origin of the play street. I've sort of seen it delivered and shaped. And then I think probably really capture the public imagination around kind of where we're going to becoming a child-friendly borough uh, and how you integrate new development into a wider community. And I think there's probably two or three things here. One, a lot of families on the estate. The idea that the estate had been at some point sort of no-go type place for the wider community. You know, you would have not walk through from Finsbury Park down to Glissol Park through it. It would have been a place you'd have circumnavigated. I think there was a wish to reduce the car, you know, the amount of the estate land that was um, given over to cars. So it's car-free development for new builds but with legacy car parking for existing tenants. And I think that's quite important in building consent. You know, you can't go to a community that is already, um, you know, using a certain level of car and suddenly move it, I think. And, and actually there's a lot of people on the estate that use their cars for work, um, you know, delivery builders, minicab, that kind of thing. And I think that's quite um, important. But the idea was that it would become less car dominant um, given how close it is to good, good transport, embedding those play principles and creating a space that encouraged people from off the estate to come to the estate as well, improving safety, permeability, those moments to stop and contrast that to the kind of prostitution and social behaviour that fueled that previous view of the estate. I think it was a really positive, bold statement to say, um, you know, this is, this is part of that wider public realm. Uh, and that, that will always have teething problems, but I think it was really, really important to the, the design team and the sort of origin of what they wanted to um, achieve on the estate. And interestingly, the, it would have been quite easy just to build three and four as we'd got outline planning permission. That, there was quite a lot of feedback and reorientation and the idea uh, of creating the new square, thinking about what um, more adult children want uh, and young adults out of a space so that the, the MUGA and the public square are making that feel safe, overlooked and, and so I think it'll be really interesting when it's fully complete to see that public square and that play street and how they, they kind of interact and then you know I do think there's always a value for private amenity whether it's back gardens, whether it's the sort of um, built out terraces on the ground floor um, so that you've got that evolving park, place tree, private amenity space, home, and delineating through landscaping those different functions. And I think that's really powerful. And there's an amazing, I think, Turkish-Kurdish family who had never really had their own outside space. So I, um, I met one summer evening and they've used their sort of new built-out terrace on the ground floor put a big wooden dining table out there and effectively made an outside dining area outside their front door. That would have been impossible in the old um, King's Crescent. And I think it also shows what a different community it is because that is, that is a dining table on the street. 
you can't get away from that. Um, but I've seen, you know, the interracial family out there smoking, having a cup of tea, you know, really engaging. And I think the way people have adopted their, their, their amenity spaces show that real value of what you can do close to the front door as well. Uh, and the way we did redesign the balcony um, and walkway areas to make them more safe and permeable and people have put out flowers on them um, and people are using their winter gardens. So I think it also belies that idea, you know, that, that, that tenants don't want or that, that kind of space. Well, absolutely they do. It's just the quality of it and how they're enabled and supported to use it. Okay, interesting to touch on just your thoughts and I'm, I don't know, um, I think the, there's a sense that Hackney has a real, obviously, mix of um, mixed community, uh, very expensive housing and social housing. I mean, I don't need to tell you about that. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, all these different um, groups leave, live, you know, perhaps cheek by jowl. How do you encourage beyond just creating shared public space, um, that sense of community to grow where you, you know, you don't end up with with silos uh, within the community. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, and, and I, I know there's many people who kind of write about their ideas about it, but certainly Hackney is kind of a, um, I mean, it's a real feature of Hackney where it's been undergoing rapid gentrification and a, um, a really accelerated housing market for some, some time. Well, I think King's, King's Crescent could have gone in that, in two different directions. I think it, it could easily have seen a sort of acceleration of that trend. But I think both in the kind of design and the, the housing strategy principles that we laid in, we tried to do everything possible while recognizing that we needed that cross-subsidy model of private sales to make sure it was as integrated um, as possible. And I suppose designing homes that encourage people to live there and not speculate and buy there and rent out. And I think that part of the borough is really interesting in the sense that it's got the traditional residential streets, but they are more mixed than you think. You know, there's often a lot of housing association or council street properties in around there. There's a lot of private renting going on. And yes, there's owner occupation. So I find, you know, the Queen's Drive flood was a really interesting example. Who lives on a street like this? And what is their ability to deal and respond to crisis? And meeting the residents, you know, through adversity shows that what looks like a sort of leafy tree-lined street that could be anywhere in London and is just full of wealthy people isn't true. And I think that is what, how Hackney sort of retains its kind of economic, social and racial diversity, uh, while it is obviously rapidly changing uh, around it. And, and I also think you can have a public realm that is designed to sell homes and be perfect and never used. And I think what we try to do at King's Crescent as well is it isn't that. It is high quality. It has high aspiration. It should be beautiful and it should help sell the homes. But it also doesn't do those things it shouldn't, which, it, you know, we, we have a big food growing area in one of the courtyards. Now, show me any private-led scheme. There might be some now, but that came out of, I think, Turkish and Kurdish families on the edge of the steering group thinking about food growing when there wasn't any green spaces on the estate and saying, well, if you create, why should that just be a lawn? What is the point of a great big lawn? 
we think you know we can have a sort of play courtyard a food growing courtyard and then a sort of more naturalistic courtyard and so a lot of our new regeneration schemes out there all have inbuilt food growing areas because that's the movement of kind of allotments and repurposing green space and um urban foraging and all of those sorts of things that are growing up and I think the proof has been that the, 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 the temporary community centre and we were running two concurrent food growing projects. There's so much demand on the estate for, for food growing. And again, that is something that brings people together. It's food, it's sharing experience. The hardest bit at King's Crescent is because there's no real external long-term partner is that when you do have an external long-term partner, you often get a kind of community development budget and, a, and that partner can bring in some of that capacity. And... At Woodbury Down, the kind of big long-term 30-year partnership means there's money from all of those partners for kind of community development. Here, that's a bit tougher, and it's a smaller estate. So what we don't have is a sort of permanent um, animation of the community hall kind of social regeneration agency. And we've tried to bring in elements from elsewhere. We've done. A, we've now got Hackney Sheridan doing some work there in the temporary space. But I think that's something that constantly needs to be kind of thought about and reinvested in to make sure that we're not, you know, as you said, um, that we're bringing the community together and holding it as it goes through this change. Um, but there's been some amazing um, fun days on the play street and, um, uh, you know, Higgins were a great development partner in terms of funding, funding that. But obviously they're there to build it. And then because of our model, they leave. And then we need to wait for whoever builds the third and fourth phases. And then they will obviously be involved in that work. But um, yeah, I think, but, but I think, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting as well. When you meet a lot of people there that moved in kind of knew each other already. So some of the people that moved out of temporary accommodation had been in hostels together in Manor House and all bidded at the same time and ended up in King's Crescent. So, and I think there was, two sisters that haven't seen each other for years who also ended up there. So it, it is a real mixture of, um, uh, of, of Hackney there. I was just closing a door. <laughs> I'm liking the wood, the wood panelling. Thank you, thank you. It's, uh, uh, we're on Farley Road. Ah. Um, yeah, which is an, another very mixed um, street. Because uh, we've got um, when we did the what, the the uh, big lunch, no, no which? There, was, there was a derelict council street property there that had been squatted, and on Farley Road, all the residents. This is going back to yeah, 2011, 2012, and I think the squatters have become really immersed in the community, and the residents were really supportive of them because the building had been empty for so long. And we basically cut a deal with the squatters. It didn't go perfectly, but we would leave them there until we were ready to do the development. And then um, we said it will be 100% council housing when we do it. So, that, so there's no selling this property off. There's no, um, and so I think it's a, it's a three-story townhouse maybe with three flats in it. Um, I haven't been back since we opened it, but again, it was quite, a, it was part of that original 2011 regeneration program, which was we are going to deal with all of those things we've not been able to find a solution to and try and do as much of that in-house. What we did though do was we had to sell another street property in Dalston to do Farley Road. 
but we were very clear to the community in Dalston that all of the kind of profit from that property was going into the Farley Road property. Um, it wasn't part of some sort of sell-off of street properties more broadly, um, which I think people were really nervous about from the sort of mixed reasons that you were talking about. Well, I would have missed uh, I, that the property was under construction when we moved in, or it was yeah. in the process of being, there was kind of a hole and yeah. then it got filled. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think we saw it go down and then come back up, but we were, we moved in 2010. So just, just yeah. on the cusp of that. that moment of, yeah. One, of your, one of the councillors then also lived on the street. So it was a very complex kind of community <laughs> politics yeah. council um, uh, piece of work. I, um, I think it's interesting to talk about some of the wider initiatives. You mentioned Child Friendly Borough. I know there's a lot going on about trees. And we're also in quite, you mentioned resilience, and we're also in a, a clearly a very interesting time right now um, where it seems like it could go either way. We've get, we're getting recommendations from coronavirus to go back to work by car, and yet there's this move to broaden pavements and, and to actually take this opportunity to convert to cycling. Um, and public transport is causing a lot of um, nervousness around uh, mm -hmm. it being full or not full. So it, I, I guess it's how is your how is the, the lockdown uh, changing or accelerating um, any of your plans? And um, and what are you know, how do you feel in this in this moment um, about, I guess, the precariousness of this moment? and where where Hackney is in terms of its resilience through it? I think there's um, a really interesting, pe people's preconceptions and policy wants going into this crisis are the same ones they've held during it and the world they want to see afterwards. So what makes me a little bit nervous is I don't think there's a new consensus out there um, necessarily for sustainable transport. I think it is kind of our political response more broadly to what makes a, a good borough, a good society, a child-friendly borough, uh, a borough that cares about climate change, um, that creates those moments to stop, that is human. Um, and so obviously that is our policy response uh, during the coronavirus crisis. It's recognising that you know communities are resilient, that know each other, that have access to services that they can walk or cycle to or use through public transport. I appreciate public transport at this moment in time is more challenging, but fundamentally that the idea of sort of returning to the time where we took our intra-borough journeys by car cannot be the right answer, however nervous we might be about um, travelling um, on public transport now. So I think that that's our sort of principles, but I do see on the other side that people are sort of saying, well, if I didn't have a car, I wouldn't have been able to do this during the crisis. You know, um, we've issued, I think, 4,000 key worker free parking permits um, during this crisis to help the NHS and other key services. And, and clearly they've been valuable. They've been applied for, they've been asked for, they're helping bus drivers get to work. They're doing really important things. But that doesn't mean the car is the long-term solution coming out of the crisis. And so I think these are quite, these are almost existential challenges because if your experience of the crisis is the safety the car bought you, then it's sort of restated why you think the car is a really important thing for you and your family and how you live. If you didn't have a car through the crisis and you're like, I'm so glad I've been able to cycle or walk to work because I haven't had to navigate 
public transport, uh, then that's your version of a crisis. And then there's everything in between. But I suppose we've, we, we've wanted to deal with some of the high speeds in the borough that people are experiencing because clearly there are fewer cars on the road. People don't think there are any traffic laws in some cases that apply to them and they're just sort of, you know, hammering around the borough. That's quite a tricky thing to do. Um, but we're working with the police on that. And then there is a redesigning of streetscapes and thinking, you know, wider pavements, how do you encourage and support social distancing? How do you create more spaces to relieve pressure on parks and our town centres? Uh, and working with TfL, so you've got numerous things now in place uh, on, on the High Street, on Church Street, um, in uh, Hackney uh, and Cambridge Heath Road to Mare Street. Um, uh, and I think it's, it's really positive that, that building out of, of payments and being really well received. And now we you know, close Broadway Market, we're closing um, Barnabas Road in Homerton, there are more sort of plans. I think it's evidence-led. What I wouldn't want people to think is that it is also um, trying to remove that element of consent and engagement. I think it's about experimenting. It's about using um, this experience to show what a more uh, human-centred city can look like. But I don't think that means that everyone's convinced. Um, and I think it's dangerous for people, I think, that support those interventions to assume everyone thinks like that. Because I think just... You know, I never encourage people to get in huge rows on Twitter, but all of these things are contested and they do need time to be worked through. Um, uh, and and I, I, I hope that it's all more connected, safer, uh, greener, more child-friendly borough is just inherently more resilient. Um, and I don't want, I think there's a real dangerous moment for us all as a society that we see our fellow human beings as somehow dangerous. The, that they're a source of virus that you know we won't ever come back to a moment where we have shared experiences and it um that's why i think keeping parks open is really important social distancing is really important keeping them open in a safe way is really important but um not recognizing so many people in hackney don't have outside space don't have balconies living overcrowded houses the importance of exercise and well-being and the public realm is really important alongside that kind of stay-at-home message and i think navigating that has been hard we've not always got it right but it is incredibly important to do that um kind of need for outdoor space the access to the parks and the and the 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 forward thinking um tree strategy um kind of go together uh lots of things i did was i think in public plant quite a lot of trees <laughs> uh, and and then just you know i'm looking over your shoulder to the tree in your your garden or your neighbor's garden mm -hmm. that i imagine offers a huge amount of well-being to everyone that can see it at home, at the start of the crisis, I was able to sit in bed and look at a blossoming street tree outside on the pavement. And from my office, I can see a beautiful view down to St John at Hackney and the, the tower at the start of the Nowway. And all of those things, I think, are really important to our sort of human well-being. And actually, more, you know, the more people that look out onto the urban environment and see nature and trees, whether or not it's public or semi-private or private i think is really really important and i think the the street trees that have continued to go in during the crisis have actually brought quite a lot of joy to the streets where they've arrived um 
and you know people are now watering them that's part of that kind of you know things that are safe to do in a collective sense even during this crisis um, um, and I was planting our our big redwood um, in Homerton Row um, at the start of the year and people came over from the bus stop and were like you know really interested and really positive and the assumption that it's just sort of green people over here and a niche interest I think is just completely completely wrong um, uh, and, and, and it's just really important to maintain that. So, um, you know, we've planted thousands and thousands of trees in a very short space of time and we're utterly committed to kind of continuing that and doing it in a collaborative way. Um, I think that's the other point. And a mix of maturities, um, you know, it's not, again, it comes back to that public realm point that this isn't about an ornamental public realm. I think it is about a sort of biodiverse, interesting, interactive, um, public realm and, and even at Woodbury Down where um, you know we're doing something in partnership the master plan there tries to maximize every bit of public realm and green space that remains in public ownership so the parks there are not public private spaces that are kind of patrolled by um, you know security guards and all that kind of thing I know there's some courtyards slightly closer to residences that are more public private and get locked at night but the big parks the reservoir walk the, the vision there was no these are going to be public spaces for all of Hackney to enjoy and I think that that also shows kind of the spirit of what we're trying to achieve uh, even in a slightly different delivery model than King's Crescent. I think for Hackney all it being a kind of a um quite a green borough already. Um, it obviously has air pollution problems and it's had quite a devastating um, impact through the coronavirus for reasons that maybe we'll understand at some point, but it can perhaps link to to deprivation and to to um, to perhaps density. And you know, I'm not sure I can answer that question. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess um, what do you think will change or come out of um, of this learning in terms of how we approach, you know, future placemaking, uh, urban design. I, I know you said there's no consensus yet, but perhaps just, um, you know, is there anything that you think needs to change in, in the view of public health and the city? I think we've got to recognise the need for uh, active high quality urban environments so I think some of the pressure on our, our parks is because they're the only places that people can can go and I think if more streets were filtered if there were more safest places to kind of jog or play near a home there would be less pressure on our on our parks I do while the kind of free gyms are closed at the moment because um, you know sort of infection control concerns, that free amenity, that common good, that um, I hope people have sort of reevaluated what they love about the borough um, and value about it and would want to see more of it. Um, you know, if, uh, and and I think there's several things, whether it's the child-friendly borough work, the sort of parklet work, 21st century streets ideas. Um, in Homerton, in Clapton, we are doing a partnership with Sport England about creating more active uh, and inclusive urban environments. So you've got one of the most deprived communities 
uh, in, in the borough that's actually very rich in kind of community organisations and very close to the marshes, the Olympic Park and some amazing sports facilities. But you still have very high levels of obesity and isolation and we're trying to try to bridge those gaps. Um, so it's not a sort of um, a, a lack of amenity there. It's a lack of sort of confidence in that amenity and being able to sort of animate it and access it and feel confident. Um, and that does mean you do need sort of revenue-funded, people-centred projects to go along with this urban change. And that's the kind of thing we're experimenting there. So I'd, I'd also want to make sure that people don't think we just plant trees and green the wealthier um, parts of the borough. And some of the air pollution interventions we've made, my favourite phrase, and I think Dr. Rachel Aldred has picked it up when presenting on our work around making more livable streets, is essentially we put two bollards in the middle of a road in Frampton Park Estate and stopped the estate being a rat run to the A12. Then we greened those bollards and yes, it's a slightly bigger, broader intervention. But the fact is, there is now almost no in, uh, you know, egress, ingress traffic to the borough or through the borough from the A12 through probably one of the largest council estates in the borough. That has to be better for that community uh, and making sure that people can see the value of doing those types of intervention in all types of settings um, in Hackney. And I think we're thinking about the sort of, um, it's a bit like the, the kind of international emergency recovery kind of response of, of building back better and making sure that everything we do isn't about returning to a normality that didn't necessarily work for people, but thinking about. So that, I guess, does say that we are going to supercharge those types of interventions. But I think it's taking people with us and explaining why, but also overlaying that kind of community engagement element and ownership, which I think is really important too, because the mutual aid groups, the, the volunteering effort, the way that faith institutions have repurposed themselves, um, all of that needs to be part of that way. It's not the council alone or the state alone in its broader sense. It is everybody sort of playing um, their part. And those, those interactive things, I think, are really important. So, you know, parklets weren't the council suddenly dropping a piece of municipalism into a street. It was, we want to do 10. Do you want to do that with us? Um, that, that, I think, is really important as part of this as well. Um, do you think planning is going to have to take a stronger line on on um, private uh, outdoor space amenity or even space standards um, in, in the wake of the lockdown? I think there's gonna, I think there's a there's a danger to sort of fall into a sort of NIMBY Hackney's full. It's too dense. You can't deliver density again. I, I think that is simplistic. I've seen it playing out in some live planning applications. Um, I don't think that's the global experience of this pandemic either. That um, yes, places that are denser and have some of the challenges that Hackney has have um, faced, uh, you know, significant uh, challenges in terms of, uh, of of death and infection rates. But so are parts of the world that bear all of those similar things and haven't so i think there's a broader you know it will be part of the public inquiry it will be part of the investigation about why the virus behaved in these ways but i still think you can have high quality dense green developments in a place like hackney that helps address some of our housing crisis and that creates a good positive um environment interesting that what the child-friendly borough stuff does is starts to unpick why sometimes those things don't work 
So there was that real push to create more play spaces in the previous local plan, but they became private and gated. The child-friendly borough work and the new local plan say urban infrastructure, biodiversity, greening, um, swift boxes and inclusive play and more affordable workspace and retaining commitment to housing are what you should see in the development. So I hope that it reduces the kind of private public kind of divide, which then puts pressure in a crisis like this on what is still public. If, if you get more, more greening, more pocket parks, more filtered areas, more public amenity out of development, then you don't see that artificial divide. But then I do have to be brutally honest. There is, you know, your garden is very beautiful. There are huge numbers of people that are enjoying wonderful private immunity space during this crisis that has been there for hundreds of years uh, and can't be undone by planning and, you know, it's private property rights and all the rest of it. So we shouldn't also just see it as a problem that is faced by new development. Some of that divide is embedded in Hackney's design vernacular already. Um, and some of our, you know, mid 20th century estates got it right and have some brilliant amenity and some fantastic, and some of them didn't, some of the new developments do and don't. Um, I think there's lessons at almost every era uh, in, in Hackney for, for good urban design and um, both in, in a crisis like this and beyond. I, I think one of the things that has happened, and I, I don't own a car, so um, I'm perhaps biased, but you look out the front and think that's a lot of space out there. And so often the barrier to the kids um, having more kind of freedom to roam or freedom to play, as you know, is traffic. Uh, and at what age is it safe for them to cross the street mm -hmm. and, and what kind of street and how busy that street is and how those can be real barriers for for, and even for um, adults, I mean, we know that the majority of cyclists in the city are from a demographic that feel very confident um, and, and that some, some groups are less well represented in the cycling and all of those. Um, so I guess that's that, that question that comes back. If you're going to be a child-friendly borough, what do you do? What happens with the traffic? We've got, um, and it'd be interesting to see the data from the period we're currently in, but we put in a, a big piece of traffic monitoring to look at where does our traffic come from. So there's, there's obviously two questions you sort of raised, is the use of um, road space in terms of parking. So the, 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 the spread of parking and what a road space is used for. Um, also on estates as well, a lot of it is devoted to parking, most of it not in use, you know, uh, and both the analysis of our um, purpose-built garages plus our sort of tarmac space is that a lot of it isn't in use or desired anymore. Now, there may be need for other storage because of overcrowding, because of different family um, makeup. So I think, um, so there's sort of, there's a bit of an analysis of sort of use of tarmac and then there's who is driving around the borough. Uh, and the, the project that we did was to try and be ahead of the call for sort of road pricing uh, and any um, further movement of that. And uh, around a third of all traffic on Hackney's roads does not start or end in Hackney. It is merely passing through. Uh, and then you overlay the kind of elements of a sort of ways, um, the way that ways ducks traffic through um, and the challenges of a sort of the, the last mile delivery. And if you could unpack 
the kind of sat nav last mile delivery and some of that free traffic you could reduce and remove quite a substantial amount of traffic from the borough while still not impacting on businesses that need delivery and those families in Hackney that still need to drive and those people that still need to um, drive a car to work so there I've always been you know if I could um, I, I've said in kind of debates on sustainable transport you know cut having a toll gate on the entrance and exit of the A12 would make a tremendous difference to the through traffic coming through the borough and causing traffic pollution and those communities that live on or near our major roads are some of the poorest and neither Hackney residents nor those residents are causing much of that traffic pollution and that's what really sort of I think is, is the challenge into um, you know what happens in the next London mayoralty and what kind of flexible um, you know, e even you know carpooling would would represent a bit of an answer to that that kind of dilemma um, because again a lot of it is single person commuter traffic still um, and I find that you know and that isn't a large family doing a family shop at the weekend you know it, it isn't the, uh, a disabled uh, adult who's only uh, way of getting around is their, is their supported vehicle or a carer that's coming to visit their parents. It's they aren't causing that traffic, it is something else entirely. And I've, I've said not being anti-car is being pro-people because I recognise there's still communities in Hackney that do need to drive, people that do need to drive. And actually if we dealt with some of this other traffic it would be easier for them. The, the, the polarisation that CPZ's caused and actually the lived experience of having controlled parking zones is just so different. I, I you know, it, we're, we're still in big conversations just to the sort of northeast of you about CPZ. But there have been people that just come up to me and said, I posed it all the way along and then it went in and now I can park near my home for the first time without driving around the block five times. And that's a car user. So. Well, it's interesting because I've just been on, I've just been roped into a, a WhatsApp feed from somebody who said their, their PZ is going to be um, revoked around uh, Stamford Hill uh, or ma made very small, just two hours is going to be or something. Yeah. And, and they said I, they opposed it when it was coming in. Now it's going away and they're, they're terrified and miserable that it's going to be gone. I haven't matched the emails from the two moments in time because I don't have time to that during the crisis, but I'm sure there is an element of, you know, of that. And that happens in Happy Downs as well, just over the road from you, when all of the ones went in around Rectory Road um, and the north side of the park. Um, and, and there's still a lot of people basically under the radar driving to Hackney and getting transport elsewhere, not during the times like this, but you know, Clapton, Stamford Hill Station, Stoke Newington Station, um, getting the bus down to Seven Sisters and then getting on the Victoria Line. People are looking for the kind of free parking that is available in the north of the borough. It's really, um, it, it, it kind of, it kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? But I do, um, I do want to know how School Streets is going, because I know that's something that you've been um putting in and you're looking at expanding has that been a very and this is when you close an area around a school for a particular times of the day is that something that you have seen as successful that you you hope to expand 
I think it's been incredibly successful. Um, I, I think it was right to start it how it did, which was an opt-in, a school community coming together and deciding they wanted a school street. And I think that was really important for the empowering nature of it to a school and a community, uh, at recognizing that that community knew its local street layout better than the council ever could uh, entering that discussion and getting proof of concept. Um, and it was never about raising revenue. Um, and, and I think I was very, I did mention on Newsnight very clear, it isn't about the sort of prohibitive nature of it, it's about the reclaiming nature of it. It's about enabling all of the permissive things that you want to do uh, with your children on to and from school. That moment to rush out of a school day and play with your friends while you wait for, you know, your parents to pick you up. That is the type of environment that you, you want to create. Um, so we're moving now into a sort of seeing that as the default. Um, the complexity is where you've got schools on major roads and what the solution is there, both for our secondaries and our primaries. Um, but I think the, the continued interest, the growth of it as a movement, the discussion that you can then have about walking and cycling, and even if parents are sort of dropping their kids back a bit further from the gate, they're still having that experience of the walk, uh, uh, that bit of exercise, that bit of community experience. So I think it's even where some people are still kind of having to do sort of school drop off a little bit further away. And again, we've always um, reassured resident access and um, disabled access to the school um, and those that do need to sort of drop off. Um, and then it's allowed us to sort of reshape some of those urban environments outside of schools. And some of them have been play streets as well. Um, and um, I think we've seen a big reduction. Um, I haven't got the stats in front of me, but a big reduction in um, the, the number of people driving and the, the uptake in sort of walking and cycling to school from a very high base, I admit. So I think we probably have in Hackney sort of 1970s levels of walking, cycling, and public transport to school, whereas the, the rest of the country is the kind of inverse of that, where so are the sort of 80% of kids. Um, go to school in that way, whereas the rest of the country is the other way around. Um, uh, so uh, but I think it's incredibly important, incredibly important. We've gone a long way from King's Crescent, but I want to kind of circle back before, um, before we conclude our conversation and, and ask you, I mean, it's, it, it's been a learning curve, you said, from that initial thought um, from where you started out. What would you say to other um, councils that were thinking about uh, developing their own housing uh, and what advice would you give them? I mean, you've talked quite a bit on all of these subjects about that push between and pull between um, making decisions that you think would be best and bringing the community along with you. So, so first of all, advice for those who are thinking about um, kind of um, how to best do uh, mixed tenure, uh, quite complex um, housing projects and, and second around community engagement. I think recognizing it's going to take a long time. And I think the, you cannot do regeneration and community involvement on the cheap, uh, both in terms of time or money. Um, I think it's really important to think about building and creating that in-house capacity, working with good architects, working with good consultants and giving the community also the time to do that co-production. You can't just do that in three months of kind of one or two drop-ins and then here's your design. Um, 
And that can be very frustrating for those that are in housing need. You know, just get the damn thing built. You know, I've, I've sat here for long enough. You've talked with me. You know, you get fatigue, I think, building. But you can also upskill a community and get them to work with you to understand good design that's sensitive to what they want to see and speak to the wider environment. Um, don't be afraid to explain viability uh, and work through density and viability and layouts and why you know, that block is private and why that block isn't or why it's that mix or why there's a penthouse there. I think you do have to sort of say, well, you know, we do need to generate income to build um, and invest in the social infrastructure and the affordable housing. So you would say be, be transparent, be, yeah. you know, be forthright and involve them in the challenging conversation, you know, because I think often these are more um, it's almost like the consultation is about trying to get it over as quickly as possible and not, and, and not um, get any, uh, and over-promise so that you don't get any objection. Well, there's a huge, you know, huge development industry out there, and I do think there is a value for, for that industry and the consultants and the engagement. But one of the things that um, I learned quite early on when I was a councillor, because we tried to do something slightly different in, a, in the council, was the sort of what lanyards are you wearing? You know, who do you represent? And are you going to be here tomorrow? And one of the strengths of having an in-house project manager with a council lanyard on is they're not a consultant that's just going to be there until you get planning permission. Um, now, the development team will hand over to a management team at some point. That will happen. But they'll go back into an organisation that role still exists, their manager's still there, the political leadership. Now, um, I think that's quite an important journey that you're not just arriving in the community, trying to get something done and walking away again. Um, you know, we're genuinely in it for the long haul. And I think that's why we're kind of, there are elements of what we do that are quite traditional. We like brick. Well, brick has been good for us in the context of Grenfell and Clavin because we, um, not that we haven't had our challenges with some of the materials and some of the regulatory changes, but we built high quality, kind of slightly traditional buildings um, that, that haven't fallen foul of some of those complexities that other places have, that have you know, you know, stepped away from brick and had, had uh, different types of cladding and vendor and things like that. So I think long haul, full life costs, work with residents because that resident's going to live there and if, if you get this right I think that's also the element that's really important um, I do think the architecture is really really vital and one of the things that we couldn't do on a scheme like King's Crescent but we have been able to do on some of our state infill schemes is start to break down into SMEs both on the architecture side and on the construction side um, and I'm working with architects that are kind of social activists as well that live in Hackney that really want to sort of change the industry as much as sort of we do. I think that's been a quite an exciting sort of evolution. Um, um, Would you be able to tell them what the benefits are of doing it as opposed to going uh, seeking a private partner? I think the quality at the end, the, the homes you build at the end. The homes that you build at the end of the, 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 the output. I'm not saying you can't do it in a public private partnership. I'm not saying you can't do it with a housing association, but um, I, I think you get a much better quality product, more of the profit 
is retained within the public sector and gets recycled back into affordable housing. Um, it, it, yeah, for all of the challenge and all of the time and all of the effort and all the resources it takes, it, it, I think it's utterly worthwhile. And I think it's the future if you can flex it as well. It can change and adapt. If you sign a development agreement five years ago uh, and, and you know, then suddenly the economic climate changes, um, you, you, you've got, you know, everyone lawyers up, it's inevitable. You, whereas in a process like this, it can be quite iterative. You can accommodate changes in public policy, you know, prioritization, so the prioritization of play or thinking, okay, the retail couldn't really work anymore in this location. So it could be affordable workspace um, or the, you know, that, that kind of stuff, I think, um, is, is what you, you can really achieve if you, if you do invest uh, for the long haul. And ultimately, you should be doing it again and again and get better. You know, <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard, long slog every time you do it. You should be, you know, getting the experience of doing it. You know, we have an in-house estate agency. We didn't have that at the start. So we were, we, I think that's something we've been really proud of. So King's Present, effectively, that estate agency was clients in the private sales and just selling the shared ownership. Now, going forward, they will be selling the private sale and the shared ownership. So we just want someone to build the stuff for us. And again, that I don't think in 2009, we'd have ever, I was told you couldn't have your own estate agency once. I was told that you couldn't have any sales um, restrictions because you would devalue it for the market. I was told you couldn't have integrated courtyards. So you know, it's all sorts of things that I was told that didn't come true at King's Residence. And, I think there's an industry there that is constantly telling you that you have to do it with us in this way. Um, and it's simply not true. So I suppose that is, it is being bold uh, and saying, you know, there is a different way. Um, but you're constantly buying private expertise. It isn't a, it isn't like we've set up a council planning, sorry, architects department. We said there's a rich scene of architects who are interested in this type of work in happening in London why would you sort of nationalize that but yes actually estate agents aren't necessarily that great let's do that bit also so it is recognizing where the public and the private interact if we don't lay the bricks we haven't bought a brick kiln you know there, there are limits to it as well and i think knowing where they are is quite important too i think that just leaves me to say thank you very much for talking today about all these things cool. thank you for for uh, hosting and uh, asking these questions about the idea. It's really, really interesting conversation. Really welcome. Well, I look forward to Wednesday in 20 years. We can talk about what it's done, <laughs> what's happened. <laughs> the tree, the, the, well, the redwood will take a thousand years, I think, to become as big as this table. Um, but uh, King's Crescent should complete uh, within, within the next four or five years. So I think that will be the, the you know, Colville will go on slightly longer, will be down is probably still got 15 to 20 years to run. Um, but I think King's present one of, I think it'll be the jewel in the crown because it, it's something that, you know, it did take 20 years. But the interesting bit, when the housing station walked away, all the residents were like, what's gonna happen next? Will I ever move? And now the fact that it is council housing, not housing association. And at the moment they said that was also the period when it isn't true now, but a lot of the housing associations have just completely walked away from social rent um, because of the government's housing reforms, the kind of end of funding of social housing. And 
all of those fears of kind of what is an affordable rent and those sorts of things. So people were like, do you know what the best thing that ever happened was that plan falling through in 2008? If you were to stand here today and it is the King's Crescent that we see now, it's not all demolished, all decanted, um, all lost uh, into into a public partnership. So I think it's really interesting. Um, You've been very vocal about the new first homes uh, policy. Imagine if that had to be there as well. Like that, I think, you know, what, I, the way it would dilute and crowd out and disempower the community. So communities don't trust the word affordable as it is. They don't trust regeneration. Um, they are worried about gentrification and change. And then you're going to develop a product no one's ever heard of, that has no proof of concept, will take away from social rent, is unlikely to be sold or bought by someone you know. Um, I'm not saying there isn't a thin sliver of a market there in Hackney. Are we still committed to shared ownership? You know, hollowing out isn't just a hollowing out of the, the poorest in a borough, it's also the middle. And so we, we're still committed to living rent and, and shared ownership. But I think Start Home doesn't add anything to that mix in a borough like Hackney. In a cookie cutter, out of town development, um, I can see why it might be a solution, but I don't think it works. And I think, you know, with complexes of leasehold as well here, I would worry about it as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it, and it is still like starter homes. It is a very small um, uh, level of kind of salary and family income that it will actually help. Um, the only thing I like about it over starter homes is in perpetuity. So that public subsidy investment um, opportunity for gone at least is held in that building and recycled onto a new buyer. I think that is the only positive thing. But as we said in our submission for consultation, that still has its inherent, who's going to regulate that? A planning service will have to know that that is a starter home for the next 50 years and constantly be kind of looking for the covenant to kind of lock that in. Um, and I think, you know, the resale of shared ownership can be challenging enough without um, something like that. So, yeah, not, not that. <laughs> <laughs> If you want it in Babylon, you can have it. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think I, I, I can understand that it's not, um, it doesn't seem to have uh, a valuable place where other things could be. Yeah, taking up space, another policy yeah, taking well, up space. You know, the, the, if you're providing a sub-market product and there's not a way of locking in kind of quality as well, mm -hmm. my other fear is, is it, up to a private developer to kind of take forward so it, it never comes over to an affordable housing provider and you know the, the, all of the discussions we've had about being tenure blind and being high quality and long-term running costs and things like that um i i worry if that purely sits within a kind of a developer-led affordable housing uh, again, it won't be a very good product for the end user uh, as well that it's designed to sort of serve. Um, and I do think that, that, you know, there's plenty of developers out there that would say, as they did um, when um, affordable housing was sort of diluted and Section 106 was changed, the seal was brought in and all the big planning reforms, actually uncertainty and creating conflict in the planning system isn't good for commercial developers either. Because 
the more contested the development is around its affordability and its transparency um, and its quality and the, the lack of chances for local people to end up living there, the worse the name of regeneration and development gets. And some of the really progressive people were, you know, sponsoring discussions and think pieces about this when the government's first set of housing reforms came in around um, starter homes and affordable housing and the reductions in grant and all of those things and the, you know, the inability to stick to 50%. Actually, people said, you know, we've done business in London at 50% affordable housing target for, you know, through thick and thin for the last decade. It worked. Why change it? And, you know, Mount Anvil and a few others said that, you know, and I think that was quite bold for them to say, you know, the value for us in affordable housing, in a system that everyone understands and is transparent. So I think you know, it isn't just about knocking, you know, development community as a sort of straw person. It is about saying, you know, actually listen to them too. Have you had to put restrictions on Airbnbs as well at King's Crescent? Or is that something that is a concern? We have power. We, we've done some communications on that. Um, so there's clear posters up. We would, in extremist sources, shared owners and tenants look at kind of, um, you know, enforcement action. I think it's the, the harder bit to kind of regulate in, in, in the sort of, the, you know, the, just isn't the tools to completely solve that. And at one end also is, um, you know, tenants, actually social housing tenants always been able to get lodges in. Um, you know, that's the history of social housing is, you know, being there and one of the answers to the bedroom tax was supposedly getting a lodger. So we've got to be sort of fairly consistent where I think it, you know, obviously where if someone's completely 100% of the year letting out their home, um, then, then that is unacceptable. And I've been sort of part of my colleague, uh, Council Marimo, has been part of the broader kind of stuff with Tom Cockley about looking at the regulation um, uh, of that. And there was a point where I think as sort of sector market leaders, Airbnb were interested in sharing their data with us so we can actually look at whether that was a social tenancy or shared ownership property. And outside of the planning process, kind of say, well, that's clearly been up there for 200 days a year and take action. But they sort of never quite got to the point of being something that was a sort of useful, more hardened tool. As it, is it something that borough-wide has been a concern about the growth of Airbnb? Thousands of homes are lost in Shoreditch now to permanent, buy, permanent Airbnb. And if anything, it's a sort of new buy to let. Um, I think it's putting pressure on rents, private rents, because people sort of benchmarking, what could I get for Airbnb versus letting out privately? It creates party homes. I had some terrible... Um, they were supposed to be shared ownership, but they'd actually been bought by professional Airbnb landlords, and all three were let out in a family core in Shoreditch, uh, essentially kind of stack and hendos. And in the end, I had to work, work with the freeholder, work with the housing association, and get them back because they a, should have never been not. They were shared ownership. They were supposed to be affordable. So they, they, they had sort of slipped away at some sort of sales phase of the development. Um, and, and it was just a nightmare to live next to. And obviously a huge amount of profit being made um, for that sort of human misery. So, um, yeah, I think Airbnb is a challenge for all places like Hackney. And especially Hackney that doesn't, you know, have people want to come here, they want to experience it. And there aren't hotels as well. So it's quite tricky. I do think a nightly accommodation rate kind of hotel cap 
tax that applies to Airbnb equally is something that would be, you know, if I was to sort of, I know it doesn't feel like a digital economy is coming back right now, but, um, you know, the cultural sector, for instance, is really suffering in London. Um, that's why people come to London and what they love about Hackney as well. To rebuild that and sustain it, I think sharing that burden with the, the people that benefit from that visitor economy, so a, a hospitality tax of some kind that gets recycled into kind of grassroots culture, could also be a good thing that, you know, we're, where we're not trying to play off social care with culture or supporting um, special educational needs versus supporting culture, because obviously those are the sorts of decisions that make people very uncomfortable. Austerity would you know, shaped by some of those sorts of decisions. And we try to preserve as much of the kind of social infrastructure as possible here. But that's one area where I think you could bring in a new source of revenue and ultimately no one will notice paying it. You know, we, we go to other European cities, it's the nine euros at the end of a stay, isn't it? But actually that nine euros cumulatively in London could be a really positive, I think, thing, and thing for, for, the, for the city. So I think that's one of my sort of build back better ideas. I think Camden uh, and others sort of share. It's a great idea. I can I can hear my three-year-old heralding. <laughs> so I, I'm going to have to sign off in true coronavirus lockdown style. <laughs> Thanks so much, Christine. Thank you so much. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. 